KBTC, a viewer-supported community service of Bates Technical College. From KBTC Public Television Studios in Tacoma, Washington, it's the Northwest Now podcast. Each week, we take a closer look at the people and issues that affect all of us here in Western Washington. So sit back, relax, and join the conversation with your host, Tom Lason. Gazing out across the beautiful vistas of Western Washington, you'd never guess that the environment is under constant attack, but it most certainly is, mostly from man-made screw-ups of every kind imaginable. Responding to those problems from spills to meth labs to disasters and explosions are the environmental first responders. That's the story of Ron Holcomb, and he tells his story in this book, Constant Chaos. And as the saying goes, we're embracing that chaos next on Northwest Now. Ron Holcomb grew up in California and fell in love with the outdoors while visiting national parks and exploring the great spaces of the American West. That got him interested in the environmental studies program at Humboldt State University. After that, he got his master's from the University of Wisconsin, where he worked with fish and game for several years. But he wanted to get back west, so he landed as a public information officer with the Washington State Department of Ecology and eventually became a frontline spill responder. He spent 40 years with ecology, responding to derelict and leaking boats, meth labs, the Amtrak derailment, and the Pacific Pipeline explosion in Bellingham, and an estimated 6,000 other newsworthy scenes all across western Washington. Many of those stories are found in his book, Constant Chaos. Ron, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now. I hope this program isn't constant chaos for you, but I do love the title of your book, and that was one of the things that intrigued me. And then started learning about the things that you've been dealing with over the years, and all of them very newsworthy. A lot of the things, if people read this book, they'll look at the chapter headings, which we'll go through, and they'll be like, oh, I remember that. Yep, I remember that one. No, that was a big one, too, and you were on a lot of these scenes. Let's start from the start, though. Um, talk a little bit about your background. How did you find yourself into this line of work? And uh, give us a little bit of a bio, if you would. Yeah, well, I actually started out as in the journalism field, and I ended up as a public information officer, first with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources after getting a Master of Science degree in environmental communications. And then I came out in 1980, shortly after Mount St. Helens blew, and mm -hmm. joined the Department of Ecology. I was in that field as a public information officer until 1994, and I made a kind of a mid-career uh, change, and I went from uh, being in the office to being in the field, to being an actual spill responder. So I went from being a spokesman, spokesperson for the state at uh, large environmental uh, disasters or incidents to actually be in a spill responder in the field. That's interesting because the career path for a lot of former journalists, you know, the, the old saying is old journalists don't die, they go to be PIOs, which would, always, which would be my next step probably if in an agency big enough to have a public information officer. But for you though, you started as a PIO and then turned around and went into a more scientific and more um, hard sciences-based discipline. I mean, you have to be able to go out there and read an MSDS sheet. You can't just be making it up. Uh, not that PIOs make it up, although I've known some that have. But uh, point being, you you kind of went the hard way. You got out into the field, you got out of the office, but now all of a sudden you've really got to know things about how to set up a scene, how to investigate a scene, how to characterize and classify a scene. Um, I think you're a little unique that way. Do you agree with that? Yes, it's, it's not a typical career path, although in our field it's very interesting. My coworker 
workers came from all different backgrounds because the spill response field, it's such a wide variety of things we encounter and expertise needed that a lot of the training we developed on our own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was always one of the things too. People ask me because I've spent a lot of years as a street reporter too. What you know? What were the ones that kind of scared you, or what? What were the ones that were kind of made you nervous? For me, it was always the spills and the explosions and the big fires because you had no idea what you were running into. Most of the stories you kind of had an idea about how they were going to go and about what they were. Some big chemical plant lighting up or explosion happening. I have no idea what I'm going to go if the wind's going to shift and I'm going to start stucking down all kinds of carcinogenics or what. You're in the same kind of boat. You never, there's really, there's never a normal day. And that's what makes that job very interesting right. and challenging and exciting and, you know, uh, with a lot of satisfaction at the end of the day. But if you're mentioning, you know, the hazards, you know, safety is obviously the number one priority of any you know, organization involved in, in emergency response. But I will say, I'll kind of give you a two-part answer on, on that. Where I felt most at risk in my more than 25 years of being a spill responder is literally on the side of a freeway at a truck wreck or something oh, yeah. else. People don't slow down, no matter how many emergency vehicles are there. And a lot of our colleagues in Department of Transportation tow truck operators I mean, they, they are injured and killed regularly. So really, that's, when it came to the chemicals and stuff, we really, you, you, you have some more control about that. So um, there were times, of course, the, you know, there's dangerous chemicals and we dealt with pressurized cylinders, especially during the meth lab years. And, and you know, that took a lot of extra care and, and preparation. But by the side of the road, yeah. freeway, that's where I felt, yeah. or the hair would stand up on the back of my neck sometimes. You make a good point though, because you can kind of set the perimeter for some of those scenes and take kind of a measured approach, but on the highway, you're trying to clear it so it's not a 20 mile backup, trying to get it rolling, and you're right there exposed to a lot of people who aren't paying attention or making great decisions sometimes. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, I'm sure driving around, you're probably a lot like me. You can give the crime scene tour or the body tour or the major event tour, and I, I drove my wife crazy. We'd drive around town doing that. Probably very much the same for you. Probably aren't many counties or neighborhoods that you drive around here in western Washington that you haven't been to in response to something, I'd guess. A absolutely true, and even where I live in Tumwater, um, I went to meth labs, a number of them, you know, within a mile of my house, including uh, the Motel 6 in Tumwater. You know, it, it just, anywhere and everywhere we were at, you know, can be rural areas, urban areas, you know, environmental incidents happen all over the place. Yeah, anything from derailments to the meth labs. What were the meth labs like? I mean, they're dangerous. You can't come in contact or you don't want to breathe a lot of that stuff. Um, was That was mostly in the 90s, early 2000s. When was that wave really hitting here? The biggest wave was kind of 2006 to, or uh, 1995 to 19, 2006. Okay. It, it, and it, it, it still, was before and after, but that was really the height. 2001, throughout our, the state, we did more than 1,800 meth labs and meth lab dump sites. It, it was a crazy time That's we did so much, and we still had to do the other spills and stuff while we were still dealing with uh, this incredible workload of the illegal methamphetamine labs. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the thing too, you dealt with you know, legal, legitimate accidents and also illegal, illegitimate dumps or 
chemical labs or, or bad actors as well. Um, that adds a sense of physical danger to it, too, because I'm sure you never know who you're coming up on. You come onto a property, you have a search warrant and whatnot. The cops hopefully have kind of cleared the area for you. But was there some physical danger for you as well, dealing with some of these questionable characters? Well, I'll give you, the, to start, safety is always the number one priority. And we had a very close relationship with all the narcotic lab teams. And we, we worked it out because there were so many, just like clockwork, they would go in arrest the suspects, you know, dismantle the lab, and then, you know, we'd be right behind them. And then the health department comes in after that for the, uh, whether the building or structure home can be, you know, habitated or has to be properly cleaned up. So that was very good. But it, what was amazing, we, the suspects at these labs, a lot of times would be arrested and they'd be taken to jail. And, you know, it's hours for us to do our work. And a lot of times they'd be released and, and back out and waiting to get back into their house or other people drive up asking, is Joe here? And it's like, you know, even though there's police and fire and they're here they to buy meth. They still want to do a buy. Yeah. Yeah. So so there's that. I, I do write, I have one story in the book where we went back to a lab uh, in Milton. There was a fire at a shed that was a meth lab and you know, everybody scattered. There were some suspects still at large. We came back the next day uh, with law enforcement and the detective was with us. We weren't expecting anybody there. And we were looking at the remnants of this burned out shed. And my partner and I were just kind of walking down, kind of looking around and the detective lifted up what looked like a piece of canvas and underneath was one of the at large suspects with a gun and you know he had a you know oh, get yeah. your effing hands up and we were like right next to it and you know we were glad that gunfire didn't erupt but yeah that was a close call yeah always a possibility yeah. on stuff like that um, talk a little bit about the importance of institutional knowledge um, and I keep relating everything to TV stations but there's kind of this this idea that you can get rid of the old reporters and bring in a bunch of cheap ones um, the same thing probably happens to first responders too um, but that institutional knowledge the experience you bring the, the fact that this isn't your first time on this kind of a scene but you remember the derailment from last time and last time when it was downhill we were able to do this and it worked pretty well is that valued enough um, do, do we do we hold that experience in, in enough have enough reverence for it? Um, I, I would say kind of yes and no. Uh, yes, for when we're when I was working, we were in the field. A lot of that is relationships. There's so many response partners we worked with. We're actually the Department of Ecology spill teams, pretty small, and you know they're not everywhere like fire departments. So we rely on local fire police public works department, state parks, you know, natural resources, uh, a lot of partners. So those relationships are important to come together and the familiarity with working with each other and also, you know, just the type of incident. The other is, are we passing that information on to the new res responders that uh -huh. they come on? It takes about a year to get a new person trained on the job experience and up and running to be a competent spill responder. So that, and, and I really enjoyed that part of the job was mentoring the new responders as they came on. Now in the, in the big picture, do agencies and even business, the succession planning is kind of a big thing. I don't think we do a good enough job with that. And a lot of times like, you know, when, when I left it, you know, there's, 
couple of decades of information and, and uh, experience and expertise is just gone. I've you know tried to mentor as best yeah. I could to people behind me. Yeah. But yeah. as those of us were getting older and retiring, you lose a lot of that institutional memory. One of the other interesting pieces of this book too that um, you touch on is that it's not just cleaning up the spill and looking at the groundwater plume and remediating it and documenting. There's a huge lit litigation piece and, and an attempt to do cost recovery and you're in court testifying. So there's um, an administrative and legal piece to this too that seems to be very plotting and kind of, it's, I'm sure it's not the good part of the job. Well, it's an important part of the job, but, but one of the reasons I did want to write this book was to um, kind of document these. Because you know some of these, as you mentioned, some of these incidents were well known. They were in the media at the time. But even at the time, we were on to the next incident. So to complete the rest of the story does take time. Whether, you know, some of these people ended up going to jail. Mm -hmm. You know, our agency can issue significant civil fines and uh, spillers can be liable for restoring the environment. And that does take, take years. So as, that was one of the reasons I wanted to kind of wrap up some of these bigger incidents to show from beginning to end. And of course, this is from my perspective. I tried to do this as a boots on the ground person, you know, yeah. the spill responder. There's many different parts of it, uh, much more than I, I write about, but I, yeah. hopefully I give a good enough perspective to get get a feel for what these incidents were like. Yeah, you wanted you wanted to be doing that part, but every now and then you get dragged into kind of the, the well, litigation. Well, piece. enforcement was part of our, yeah. our job. I mean, we had to, you know, deal with the spill and, you know, I coined kind of the term environmental medic. We, we triage, we stabilize, and then we try to, you know, heal these environmental wounds. We're also kind of environmental detectives, you know, who did it, why, what, right. and then what kind of liability. And, you know, we were civil as far as our enforcement, but we had the ability to, to issue penalties. And then if it was criminal action, then we work with uh, like the Environmental Protection Agency. They have right. criminal investigators right. for, for federal follow through and fines. And I ask you about those various points, the on scene piece, the litigation piece, the um, investigation piece to ask you this question. With your years behind you, are Washington State's environmental laws tough enough? Or are they too tough? Too much administrative rulemaking and they've gone too far. How, how do you see it? Well, I'll first answer that by there have been tremendous improvements. When I first started as a spill responder in the 80s and 90s, we had large spills regularly off the coast in Puget Sound. That doesn't happen anymore. And that is directly the reason of of laws and regulations and an, and an emphasis on preventing spills because it, it's much more cost effective to prevent a spills because it's very expensive to clean them up. Could our laws be tougher? Of, of course, you know, we're facing a, a much bigger global, you know, climate change and stuff. And, and part of the focus of my book is you know, that bigger picture of climate change and, and kind of ratcheting down on greenhouse gases, we need that and, you know, we need to keep getting tougher on that. But no matter how many laws and regulations that you have in place, people screw up, mm -hmm. people intentionally do bad things and equipment fails and, and that was our world. And, and as long as there's fossil fuels and mm -hmm. chemicals that are, you know, just part of our society, 
we're going to need to deal with when we have these accidents and, and mishaps. When you talk about oil, you describe it as the devil's excrement, which I, which I love. So here's the big question. Do we have the resources in place? Do we have enough resources? Are we ready for the big one if it ever happens in the Salish Sea? Washington State is one of the, the best prepared states in the country for, you know, in oil spill prevention, preparedness, and response. So, yes, we are. However, I must be very honest and real, mm -hmm. and I write about this in the book. Unlike, you know, a residential or commercial fire or a medical emergency, when you call 911, they're there in minutes. When it comes to an oil spill, a big oil spill on the water, the response is not in minutes, it's in hours and days. And that is the reality is because even though there's equipment staged all over the, the sound and, and the state, it takes time for it to be mobilized and, and brought to the scene. So the public expectation is always sky high when there is a big spill and it, it, you know, and understandably so, especially if there's oiled wildlife and, and obviously oiled shorelines. The spill will be cleaned up, but the, the damage is done, unfortunately. It, right. Once oil spills, you've lost half the battle because it's out and it's spreading and it's, it's hard to you know, contain it. But it, you know, the beaches will be cleaned up, the oil will be cleaned up, you know, there'll be tremendous damage, but that's the reality of a big oil spill. Knock on wood, we have yet to have the big one on the Salish Sea and in Puget Sound, like an Exxon Valdez scale deal, and I good grief, I, I know we all hope we don't. Um, and I'm glad you were able to talk about that as one of the major threats. Another one of the major threats that was identified and was a big issue politically several years ago was oil trains. Um, we had a big explosion down on the Columbia, I think it was down in the Vancouver area, and I think you were at that one. Talk a little bit about oil trains. Do they, oil trains, do they remain a threat? Has there been any improvements with double-hold tankers? Where are we? Well, the, um, the type of oil we're talking about on the oil trains is the the Bakken oil that comes from those fields in North Dakota and Eastern Montana. There are no major pipelines from there running from the east to the west coast. So that oil, and that was from fracking and there was a big boom, it started coming in about 2012. And it, it comes on these trains and they're basically pipeline on wheels because these are the tank cars and that's the whole train uh, is like that, and you know the the first big one we had was on the Columbia River. Is actually on in, in Oregon, okay. Mosier. Um, but anything that happens, and a lot of people probably don't realize, anything that happens along the Columbia River, even if it's in Oregon, we care about because the Columbia River sure. is shared uh, by Washington, and same for Oregon. So we work closely with with Oregon. They don't have nearly the spill program that we do. So sometimes, and in fact, on this one in Mosier, Oregon, we went down and basically helped out their spill program and, and served in a lot of capacities in that response. We were very fortunate. The, the train derailed, caught fire, and spilled. It, in a small town, and I was on the helicopter when, as soon as we heard about it, we hired a helicopter out of Olympia. I was on it with some other folks, 
uh, and we flew directly over to kind of get the first reconnaissance of what it was. It had damaged the little town's sewage treatment plant, and so a lot of the oil flowed in and you know overwhelmed and, and got yeah. their sewage treatment plant, but it didn't get in the Columbia River because the tracks are very near the Columbia River. And so over the, the spill event, only a small amount got into the river, so we, we dodged, dodged a bullet. Mm -hmm. um, after I retired, we had our first train derailment and fire up in Whatcom County. Right. And again, the same thing happened, dodged a bullet, there was a fire and there was a spill, but it didn't get into any waterways. And although, you know, big cleanup for the soil and evacuations at the time, um, we, we dodged a bullet. But those trains keep, you know, they come through the state, uh, from Spokane down to the Tri-Cities along both sides of the Columbia River, up from Vancouver through Tacoma, Seattle, and up to our, the main refineries in uh, Anacortes and uh, north of Bellingham. And I wanted to talk to you about that. One of the chapters in your book, Under the Devil's Excrement, is Bomb Trains, the Danger of Bakken Oil, which you touched on there. But there are a lot of interesting titles in here for your chapters, Calamity in Penn Cove, Midnight Mishaps, 10-month um, cleanup along the Chehalis, Meth Lab Madness, Chemicals, Guns, and Sex Toys. We will, this, is a, this is a family show. We'll stay out of that one. Um, what are we going to do now? Daily Danger on the Highway, Mystery Death in Tenino, The Burning Highway, Chemtrail Conspiracy. So you've, you touch on all of this in this book. Um, what, are, what are one of your two, what's your, what's your favorite story? If you talk to somebody about this book you've written, what is one of the stories that you tell people and they go, oh, isn't that interesting? Well, I think one of them goes back to actually the days when I was still a public information officer. But one of the defining spills uh, in the state uh, for ramping up our spill preparedness prevention response program was the Nestucca oil spill in late 1988-89 and it was a 230,000 gallon heavy oil spill right off of ocean shores and it killed tens of thousands of seabirds. It oiled the coast from ocean shores all the way up to the west coast of uh, Canada and got Canada and British Columbia, you know, into a, they were angry at us for allowing this to happen. But they've been um, flushing their sewer into the, <laughs> into the Strait of Juan de Fuca yeah. for 30 years. So, you but, know, we're even. That's another yeah. story. But, <laughs> but that uh, story, I lived it. Uh, it was many months. And that one has uh, particularly, you know, impacted me. Uh, back in the early days. Seeing the damage. Uh, another one more, although recent, not, not so much, but when I was a spill responder was in uh, June of 1999 when the Olympic pipeline yeah. exploded after a 277,000 gallon gasoline spill occurred. And th that wasn't in my region, but I was part of the investigation team for ecology and was actually side by side with the National Transportation Safety Board in, included in their investigation. And, you know, that's where the spill happened. And they really weren't sure at the control what was going on because yep. they'd had problem with this line. They actually restarted it. And there were two 10 year old boys in the creek playing with fireworks. They ignited this and ironically, they probably saved lives and damage because the, the gasoline was flowing down towards right. the city of Bellingham. It could have been right into downtown Bellingham. Yeah. Could have been way worse. It was you know, horrible. There was an 18-year-old 
kid that was fly fishing in the river and was overcome with the fumes and basically drowned and then then the explosion happened you know of course quite the environmental damage and you know some people did go to jail and yeah last couple of seconds here i want to talk about one that's near and dear to tacoma's heart and that is the calacala it spent its last couple of days down on the hylbos here they couldn't save it so maybe give us give us the 30 second rundown on on what why couldn't we save that darn boat well boat owners know yeah. even when everything is going well on a boat it's a money pit it's very expensive so you can imagine an old you know several hundred foot ferry deteriorating it costs leaking to, to to fix it up yeah. you know and it just wasn't going to happen unless some as you mentioned earlier a billionaire or multimillionaire sweeps in swoops in to save the day and uh fortunately it it didn't sink when it was here and it was uh demolished and and some of the pieces will still live on uh, i think up in kirkland as as public art that one must have hurt a little bit. All right, Ron Holcomb, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now. The book is Constant Chaos, and I hope this wasn't too much chaos for you. No, thank you very much. You bet. Ron Holcomb describes environmental degradation as death by a thousand cuts. The bottom line, there's no getting around it. Our modern lives degrade the environment, but over time, we're slowly learning to prevent contamination and extract resources in a sustainable way galvanizing the political will to implement what we've learned is the challenge and frankly the only hope for this resource hungry world.